Everybody, welcome to Killer Serials. I am Tony Jones. I'm Ryan Parker. And we talk about serial TV and that break it down and in a killer fashion. <laughs> we've been the, off the, the serials. The serials may be killer. I don't know if our commentary is. I don't know. We've been, hey, don't come on now. <laughs> we have been off the air for like a year, but Life. here we are back. Happy Life. to be back. Yep. We're tackling a we're this week we're it's doing, odd, right? I bet it's gonna come as a surprise to some people, right? <laughs> like they didn't even miss us? No, no, no. Well that too, <laughs> but I meant the show on uh, you know, at first glance doesn't it doesn't really fit with some of the series we've covered in the past, like The Path and Yeah. Handmaid's Tale and things like that. We've saw, we've done some uh docuseries, but this is this is one that uh, you recommended. It's called Sunderland Till I Die. It's on Netflix. You and I both binged it over the course of less than a week. Yeah. Um, I don't it's easy to it's do. Gotten, eight 30-minute episodes. It's, it hasn't gotten a ton of buzz, but you and I both liked it a I loved lot. it. I loved it. It's one of the best docuseries and, and really one of the best series I've seen in a long time. I think. Yeah. It's... So, it's it's like it's very similar to Last Chance U in that it follows a Great an point. athletic team and okay. both its exploits on the field and its struggles on the field, but also its you know back office staff, the people who run it, um, some of the controversy around it, and like Last Chance Most U, importantly, but, the but, fans. E- but even more so, the fans um play a role like the town plays a role more i'd say more the i'd say more the fans than the town you don't really get a sense of the town true. other than so, in the opening episode when they set it up for context but it's yeah. not like you it's not like we're going into a um a closed down ship place. yard or something yeah. like that it, so yeah yeah let's set the, i'm going to set the table here do it for uh, you're 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 leading us in there, but before we get too far down to kind of the strengths and weaknesses of the series, a lot of people may be familiar. I don't know, you know, how popular, uh, you know, British football, as they say, we'll say we say soccer, is with people who listen to this podcast. But uh, the series follows Sunderland Association Football Club, which has a long and storied history over a hundred years. Um. And they were formerly a Premier League team. So we don't really have – I think baseball is the closest thing that we have to the British professional football system. So the Premier League in England is the highest level. It's like, the, it's like Major League Baseball, right? And, in fact, it's one of the most powerful football leagues in the world, right? So teams like Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United. Below that, you have the champion ship league 
Uh, and then below that, you have League One, and it goes on down kind of like AAA, AA, single A baseball. Um, the British football system is different than, let's say, American football, where you compete in divisions. If you win your division, you go to the playoffs. If you advance through the playoffs, then you win the Super Bowl. And British football, everybody plays everybody. The whole league plays each other. And it's a point system. You get three points for a win, one for a draw, and zero for a loss. Uh, and whoever has the most points at the end of the season are your champion. The bottom, this is where my knowledge breaks down a little bit, the bottom two to three teams in the league get relegated and sent down to the lower division, which has impacts on the league or on the club rather uh, for spending, how much money comes in, uh, the level of competition. And what I learned through the series is that you can even be relegated out of the champion league down to championship league down to league one. So uh, we catch Sunderland, a former story club that had some success at the highest level of English football drop uh, they've just been relegated to the championship. And basically that's where we meet the team. It follows them over the course of the 20, what is it? 16, 17 season, I believe. And it basically is a, I don't know if it's giving it away to say, basically it is things don't go well for this club. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think we can give it away. Assuming that most people who are yeah. going to listen to this. Have, have I mean, they, they say slow decline and painful it's so painful because it was obviously uh, a great humiliation for the town and the club to be relegated from uh, the, Ch the Premier League to the Champions League. And now they are like struggling to stay in the Champions League. And uh, it seems like it's probably quite – you would think if you got dropped from one league to the next league, you would naturally be kind of the top of the next league. Um, that's not been their experience, but it, it seems like it's a very unusual thing to drop two leagues in two years. It does. It does feel that way. And I don't understand. And I think one of the, uh, I think there's a show on Amazon. You, you may go watch it now. There's a, a series on Amazon about Manchester city who ha recently have, you, you know, year on year been at the top of the league. They have an owner who spends, and we'll come back to this later. They have an owner who spends boatloads of money to get players. Um, there's a, another series on Netflix that follows Juventus, which is an Italian top league team. Uh, but, you know, this is following a team that's kind of been relegated to that second tier. I don't think, and I think the show still does a good job of showing this. I don't think many of our listeners understand the passion that real football fans have abroad, like Europe, the UK, Spain. I, I think there's a level of fandom there that I, I don't think any of our sports touches. You know, I, I, and I think it's, yeah, I, I thought about that, that too. And I just, you know, you think about like how crazy Oakland Raiders fans are or um, Philadelphia Eagles fans. I mean, I think you could probably find it like you could go to Philadelphia and you could find people with Eagles tattoos. Um, who rise and oh, fall, of course, of you, course. Know, you know, rise and fall with the, the team, same with the Dallas Cowboys. There, there are certain teams that, um, that get that kind of fealty from their American, um, 
uh, fans. But you, what you don't see, I think, is an entire town, like a, a relatively small, you know, city, and their entire identity is wrapped up in that. Because in the United States, most of the metropolitan areas that are big enough to have teams um, have multiple teams. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm in Minneapolis and That's we have NFL, point. NBA, NHL, and MLB. And now we stretches have a, your attention span and your loyalty. Now we have a soccer team too. You know, you maybe if you went to like Winnipeg uh, in Ontario, you might say, or is Winnipeg in Manitoba? And I think it's in Ontario. Yeah. You, you might, you go there and you're like, they have the Jets. Like they have an NHL team. That's all they have. Um, you might go to, you might, but there's also the CFL, right? Like, yeah, but you, okay. Then you might go to Nebraska and be like, they have the Cornhuskers. Yeah. Uh, D one football team. That's all they have. Um, But my, but I think to your, yeah, this is a different, you, you, I think you'd have a hard time. I don't think if you went to a bar in Lincoln, Nebraska, after a, after a Cornhuskers football loss, you would find people arm in arm singing and weeping the school fight song. I don't think you would. I don't think you would see that. I, I agree with you. And I feel like it also, even if you live in America in a place that only has one thing going for it, like uh, Sunderland, right? That like this, the show fair, fairly early on makes uh, the case that this is kind of the literally the only game in town, yeah. right? And in a lot of ways, and some of those we'll come back to as you've hinted at, like kind of a an economically depressed area. Um, we are spoiled for choice in the states because even if I live in a place, I still live in a time zone where on an afternoon I can watch a baseball game on TV or I can watch a basketball game at night. There's nothing else. If you spend any time. If you're a sports fan and you've spent any time overseas, it's hard, right? Like if you're a fan of American sports, because you've got to be up at three in the morning to watch a game or either it's been played on tape delay. There's just not any other game in town other than, you know, in the UK, I guess your two most popular sports would be football, uh, you know, British football and tennis, right? Like, they're they're rabid fans of you know Andy Murray or any any. I mean, that, yeah, I think there term. are other. There's nothing else. For, there's nothing else for them to even watch. There are other right? sports no in the British sport. Isles that engender. There's loyalty. no college. There's no college team to support. No, no, right? That that whole system is completely absent. From, yeah, but there that. is like cricket. There's rugby. Like there are other sports that engender great national fervor, but nothing comes close to soccer. That I mean, kind of professional, yeah. high quality, week after week performance. If you're lucky to support a one of a the really things, one of the things that I, um, I I appreciated about this series, and you've already talked about a little bit of it, but just in like setting the table for the whole thing, is I think that the I'm not a soccer fan personally. There's a bunch about soccer that drives me crazy, you know, like games that end one to one <laughs> which you know there's some you reason, american you american so many ties and it's so but hard we don't rope but when you when you're in a point system i mean i'm not going to defend it yeah it's hard to watch and say all right well you walked away with a tie 
But, you know, as you see in the series, that one point means a lot if you're trying to fight for a place in a in an overall league. Look, right? I don't I, this is what I'm going to get around to saying is that even though I'm predisposed to not 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 to be interested in soccer because it's I find it a frustrating, boring game with a lot of balls just getting kicked around and not many shots on goal, not much action per se. I think that the filmmakers in this series did a very admirable job of, first of all, explaining the whole soccer thing. And all there's so many intricacies of these um, British soccer leagues. So like the two different trading windows, they do a great job of explaining how important that is. And even cutting away to, you know, BBC radio, it's, it's decision day or whatever. And showing like how the entire country is like checking their phones nonstop to see if their club um, bought a player, traded a player. And this is another weird thing that you don't see in, in American sports leagues is that, um, these teams can loan players to other teams in other leagues. Like they could loan a player to the Spanish league or the Italian league to offload that salary, but they're not actually selling or trading that. Then the whole thing where you get relegated to a lower league or you get promoted to a higher league, I think they did a real nice job on that. Like I thought one of the things about this series that was admirable was uh, the graphics that they use to show the standings and to show where Sunderland is in the standings. Um, so stuff like that, um, there's there's so many hurdles for an American viewer who's not a soccer fan from realizing that the manager is the head coach um, and figuring out how these um, players, a lot of them go to like a school. It's again, something we don't have. So there are kids who are at the Sunderland Academy. It looks like starting from age six, seven, eight, and they're kind. It's kind of their pipeline into the professional football club. So there's yeah. just a lot. There, there's a lot of. Um, there's a lot of teaching going there on. There are a lot of cultural hurdles that the filmmakers did a nice job of explaining Agreed. clearly, and I, I that that was one of the things they got over quickly that that sucked you in. And then I know even to talk about the town of Sunderland to set the table more, like I actually did not like the, um, the song during the opening credits. I, I found it kind of treacly and I skipped it. Um, I will listen to it the first on the first episode, but then I, I really love that skip opening credits option that Netflix gives you. I wish Amazon prime gave it and Hulu gave it, but um, I skipped it because I thought it was a little melodramatic, but you really liked it because it, it did set the the scene for the town of Sunderland. Yeah, I think there's I, I loved the song. I think it's it's one of the better theme songs of of any show that I've watched in a long time, because I think it captures that that sense of love and adoration and devotion that that town has for its team. Um you know, I think there are probably many ways you could have gone uh, like hardcore rock or punk or whatever. But I think to, to dial it back and capture it in that way is is really effective. I really appreciate your points about the way the show kind of educates viewers about the whole system and the whole league. Uh, 
it also is evidence that no American should ever own a British soccer team, right? Because we just do not get it. And no. yeah, <laughs> and we'll get to that later. Like you I see imagine, that, I imagine you know, that some billionaire could probably educate himself well enough to know to own it. Well, as long as it's not Ella Short, you know. Uh, but yeah, I think. And another thing, I, if we're talking about what what the show does well, kind of uh, as it functions or as it, regarding its aesthetics, it's also beautifully shot. I mean, it's and it's also as there's some suspenseful editing there where you think just like a fan, you know, you're going to show up on Saturday. This is the day we turn it around, right? Surely it can't get worse. This is where we're going to get the win. And I feel like the filmmakers did a really good job, and especially the editors of creating that sense of maybe this episode, right? And the wins, they are very few and far between, but when they come, you get a real sense of like, man, these guys, you know, they did it. Um, and then obviously at the end of many of the episodes, when you've seen that, oh boy, they're just slipping further and further down the championship. Uh, it really comes as like, I don't know. I think they do a really j- good job of conveying those emotions of hope and despair. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll piggyback on that just to say that like the way that, again, I, I'm not a, I'm not a soccer fan. I don't enjoy watching soccer, but they do a really nice job of, Really, they only show the goals, basically. But they also do a nice job of showing plays by individual players on whom they are focused on a particular episode. And I thought, you know, as an indication of how much money they spent on this, filming this, uh, you know, surely they didn't film all whatever there are. There's a, I don't know, there's not as many as a Major League Baseball season, but man, there are a lot of games in a, in a championship league season for these guys. Um, They have a camera trained on the coach. They have a, they have cameras mounted behind each goal. They have a camera. Now they might be grabbing footage from other, you know, other um, venues. And they also have, you see later, they have a digital, I think if you look at the credits, you know, they have an in-house digital team that were probably shooting a lot of this footage. Yeah. So my point is like every time a goal is scored, they have a camera on the coach. They get his reaction. Um, They have multiple cameras trained on the Sunderland fan section, whether it's a home game or an away game. And, and so I'm just, you know, just to what you were saying, it, it, Ryan, it's not just when they win. And I think they win like one game during the course of the filming of this show. But every time the team scores, the jubilation in the fan base is over the top. They can be down in a game in a match three zero or four zero and score a goal, even on a game that they're destined to lose, and the fans come. It's incredible. Unglued. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, and they have a camera trained on. I think different. Because it, like it feels like they have cameras trained on defense, midfield, and forwards in the striker position. But I'll tell you fairly quickly, I was thinking, I think Tony and I could play goalkeeper better. Those goalies were terrible. <laughs> Dude, those goalies were terrible. I feel bad for piling on, but, you know, like I can't do it. I would probably – that's what I would look like. But I'm like, surely you can find somebody who – 
I can look at it and go, oh, I couldn't do that. I you mean, know? they look like they're out of position. They look like they, they are all three goalies that we see over the course of the season are bad. I mean, maybe the Belgian guy was good till he broke his finger. But man, oh man, there must nasty. be a it must be pretty real nasty tough break. to find an elite goaltender. Yeah. Hey, we're gonna get to um, we're gonna get to the heart of what we like to talk about because we we feel like this series has some real uh, religious and spiritual implications, and that's a little tease for you to stick around. But I'd like for us to talk about a couple of more cultural things before we dive into that, um, because I think we see. Uh, two things I want to talk about uh, or ask you about, Tony. Uh, what do you think the series tells us about professional sports in general? Right. We've already talked about the differences between British football and American football. But uh, I have a couple of thoughts about what professional sports does to a community um, and how that functions as kind of a, an economically, culturally. And the second topic would be um, about kind of piggybacking on that one of the other uh, elements of the series that i really appreciated is you get a sense that there's a little bit of upstairs downstairs going on here right yeah i like i I really like that that you say that um because the players and the and the manager and the owner exist at a certain level and then you have the kitchen staff you have the support staff and then i think below that and i think in that downstairs is the are the fans right they exist at a at a separate on a separate I don't know. Plane, it, yeah, there, there, the right is, order, but. there is like a Downton Abbey thing going on where you've got the players and the management and the coaches. And then you've got all the support staff, the groundskeepers and the cooks. I mean, you really you and here's here's something I think I'm sure these filmmakers did as as the f- series went on. They found the more compelling staff. And they focused on those staff and you know, they, they spent more time filming. Um, so the woman, oh, what was her last name? Rome, who's in the kitchen and she's one of the cooks. She's incredible. She's amazing. And they, you know, they, they really, she, she's, she was more and more involved as the, you know, as the series goes on. Um, so I think you're exactly right to say there's an upstairs downstairs deal going on. Um, I like that. I, I just when, when you ask about you, you can reflect on what it means to a town, but I just want to say culturally to step back to, uh, and, and I'll I'll pimp a book by a friend of mine. It's um, it's coming out next month in April. It's called Seculosity, and it's. It's by a guy named Dave Zahl, Z-A-H-L. And he's like, basically, where to turn when everything is religious. I mean, that was the original subtitle. The subtitle now is like how parenting, uh, working out, you know, our works, our marriage, everything has become religious and what to do about it. So he has a chapter in there on sport, but, you know, he'll say, he writes about how, you know, as as established organized religion has declined in the West, both Great Britain and here in the States, 
other things have taken the place. Like people are no less religious, but they're not going to church or synagogue anymore. Well, two well, two series we could talk about to, uh, to that point uh, to interrupt quickly is I think I recommended to him the Firefest documentaries, yep. right? Yeah, where these music festivals kind of begin to function as tent revival meetings, right? Yeah, and and so you know you think about your friend who is basically like religious about CrossFit. Or he has a, a chapter. They're the worst. Yeah, exactly. Or he has a chapter about parenting, you know, and how people get in these camps. Like, are you an attachment parent or are you a baby wise parent? And it's it's not unlike being a Methodist versus being a Catholic. Um, and this is a clear example of sport filling the same need and the same niche in people's lives as religion used to in this blue collar, you know, downtrodden town in Northeast England. And the film- You're driving us right to the meat of the conversation, aren't you? Well, the the filmmakers make no, um, don't try to hide this in the opening episode, which we're going to get to here in a moment. But my point is, rather than talking about the granular specifics of this show, just that one of the functions that sport- is now um, fulfilling for people is a religious, you might say a religio-spiritual role in their lives. I I would argue that if we went back 100 years and the biggest sports in the United States were horse racing and boxing, that people were not religious about Jack Dempsey. He was not a Messiah figure. They did not weep not when he lost a boxing match. Not at all. Sport was inter- an interesting sidelight in people's lives. Sport is now, like I know for a fact, because I write for the Minneapolis paper, the the paper sells a lot more copies and gets a lot more clicks during the NFL season because Vikings fans are fanatic and they want to read every word they can about the Vikings and they listen to podcasts about the Vikings and they watch YouTube videos about the Vikings. And you see in ESPN's coverage how they have a a reporter at every training camp of every NFL team. People are ravenous for more uh, connection to their team and um, in spite of the fact that, let me just say, and it's the same for the team, the, the Sunderland team, none of the guys who play for the Minnesota Vikings is from Minnesota. They, these guys are free agents. They, they don't. They played somewhere yeah. else last year. They're going to play somewhere else next year. They don't care what they play. Day. You're rooting for laundry. You're rooting for a color on a shirt and an owner. I mean, the owner of the Minnesota Vikings is a commercial real estate magnate from New Jersey, Ziggy Wilf. He doesn't live in Minnesota. He has no connection to Minnesota. The Vikings are a a, a piece in his financial portfolio. You know, so it's a crazy thing when you step back and think about it. But if you put it in the context of the decline of religion and people are still looking for some kind of transcendence and meaning Sport is one of the things that fills that vacuum in a lot of people's lives. I want to I want to pose a, a a suggestion for how, in part, we may have gotten here. Not just with the decline of 
religion, but also with the rise of the superstar because, and part of that is financial. So and I, I, I need to look this up and, and I wish I could remember the, the name, but I would go to a bar when I lived in Alameda, which is uh, kind of a, a suburb, a small town just outside of Oakland, right, right, right across. The, there's a tunnel that gets you into Oakland. Huge Raider fan base there. Um, very close to the Coliseum where the Raiders play. And I, of course, as being a Saints fan, I would always have to go to a sports bar on Sundays to watch the Saints game. And there sat at the bar uh, every Sunday was this famous former um, Oakland Raiders receiver. And I, I just remember I talked to the bartender. It shocked me that this guy was sitting here. And he was like, yeah, this was his and has been his bar his whole life. Even when he played for the Raiders years and years and years ago, he would come in here and just chat with whoever's here because this is where he came to drink. And we talked about how athletes just don't do that anymore because they've been put on a different, they're on a different economic plane than they used to be. These receivers back in the day weren't making hundreds of millions of dollars, right? They were kind of, they were middle-class workers yeah we're, right, who may we're recording this had a job in the offseason we're recording so, this on the day after Bryce Harper signed a 330 million dollar contract to play yeah. baseball so i think when you had so i think what has happened is the teams or at least the players and i think you see this in Sunderland exists at a remove from the people who root for them by virtue of this economic system of which they're a part. And I think that it creates that, that why I mentioned the upstairs downstairs, but the other side of that, I think is that now not only are they imbued with these superpowers, right? This athleticism, this otherworldly athleticism, they also have this they have resources that a lot of people don't have. They move in communities that a lot of people aren't a part of. And I think that contributes potentially to kind of the deification of uh, the athlete and the religiosity of sport, you know, which is what I think you and I were particularly drawn to in this series. Yeah. I, 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 I just think it's fascinating. Now maybe we can talk about in, you know, our remaining minutes here, talk about some of the specifics of the show. Um, regarding, regarding religion. Well, right? regarding religion. And I think it's, there's one character in particular I'd like to talk about, but what are your thoughts? I mean, the, the, the filmmakers are not, I almost didn't believe it when in the opening episode, the Catholic priest is giving his homily and he's basically talking about the, um, the football team, but I, I got to tell you by episode seven, when they circle back to him and then they pan out to the congregation and half the people at church on Sunday morning are wearing Sunderland scarves and, uh, uh, sweaters. I mean, it's, it's like, no, maybe he just knows his audience. Like, what was your take on that? Not so subtle connection between religion and sport in the opening episode. Well, I, I think it's a great way to to start the series and a great way to capture the fervor that the fans have for this team. 
for a moment, I was like, oh, is this staged? And then the more I thought about it, I was like, no, if there was a match on Saturday and they won, for example, then yeah, you're going to show up in your gear to celebrate on Sunday morning. Or if there's a game Sunday afternoon, a match on Sunday afternoon, you're going to go dressed for the match because you're probably going to go straight from church to the bar or to the match. And I I don't think it's uh, completely out of left field. I think if you were in a lot of, if you went to mass on Saturday in new Orleans, you would hear probably a similar message. Yeah. Right. Or if you went to any church on a Sunday in new Orleans and you would see a lot of the same people, because when we were talking about communities that, uh, that, fandoms right in different communities across the country i mean new orleans really did come to mind because if you've ever been there on a sunday when the saints are in town it's a special it's a special thing right the whole town is kind of turned out and black and gold and you know you're either at the game or you're at a bar or you're hosting a a watch party so to speak yeah so i thought this was i thought that was a very effective way to start the series and but i'm glad it's something that they didn't to the series credit and to the to the editor's credit, they didn't go back to that well uh, often. I think episode seven uh, is an episode that we both particularly liked. And there is that it feels like maybe that's the same service because they go back to the service at the church and it's around Easter time. And the priest is talking about hope and resurrection. And this is a point where if, if we want to use the, the, the Jesus metaphor. I mean, they are in the grave, yeah. right at that point in the season. They're like the bottom of the league, and there's all they have is hope for a better future. and And I really liked those metaphors. I felt like they were earned. You know, I felt like there's a way in which you could have gone back to that church setting to to convey that theme earlier in the series. But I think by the time they come back to it, it just, it works so incredibly well. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, I, I love, I love that episode seven. And what's crazy about that episode seven is, you know, you think, um, you think they're up. One of the things that I've grown a little bit frustrated with in serial television is the, is the alternating up and down, um, episodes. So for instance, my wife and I quit watching Marvelous Mrs. Maisel because it became so formulaic to us that like, oh, she's going to bomb this episode. Then she's going to kill next episode. Then she's going to bomb next episode. You know, you're a little bit like that up and down. Like one episode was victorious and one episode ended in defeat. I I, I find the same thing. Like I, I watch uh, Crashing, Pete Holmes' show, which, um, by the way, this week, this Sunday's show I thought was exceptional. Um, some exceptional. I haven't watched it yet, but I've really enjoyed the season. Exceptional so far. acting by the woman who plays his girlfriend in in this episode. Oh boy, she's great. Last yeah. night or last Sunday night, but um, but a little bit like Pete ends the episode like he, victorious, or Pete ends the episode defeated, and so here we are in episode seven of of uh, Sunderland till I die. And I really felt like that there was like a real three act play in that episode because you're like, finally there, you know, like they finally win a game that everyone's cheering. I don't know if you remember the chef she's on the bus. She's talking about it's Easter time. It's the time for miracles. 
And then, uh, you know, the next day, like that night, one of their star players gets um, gets arrested for drunk driving, smashes up a bunch of cars and is like, does the perp walk out of jail the next morning and they release him and like they the, the, the downward spiral continues. And I, it's a huge. Blow. Right. Yeah. And it was so it was so fascinating. It's such compelling television and these religious themes, and even even uh, Martin Bain, the the uh, executive, the senior executive, or whatever they call him, general manager, or whatever. Um, Can we not agree that that guy is is pretty oh cool? My gosh, like I could listen to him read. <laughs> I could listen to him read a phone. He's book. cool. He's like good looking. He's super articulate. I think he's the next Bond, he's in, right? He's, the he's next in Bond. freaking great shape. I'm like. Wow, this guy's—he's got it all together, except he just has a crappy, crappy job. Um, right? Yeah, he—he he comes out smelling like a rose for the most part. Um, we can talk about how the series ends if we want, but um, you know, I, I just thought like then he's talking about the guy who got arrested. Everybody makes mistakes, um, but when you're you know playing for a team and making that much money, you're held to a higher standard kind of a standard line, but he also doesn't express any, like, he's very, he's very, what would I say? Like, he's very sanguine about the whole experience of these, these kids are like trying their hardest. You know, I I was kind of waiting in the series for what you sometimes hear from college football coaches who are struggling. They back away from saying it's about wins and losses. And they say, this is about forming young men, you know, character, the character of young men. Yeah, That's kind yeah. of how yeah. they redeem themselves in the midst of a losing season. Martin did not say that, but it was like, he was right on the brink of it, you know, and it's more like about what it's doing for the town. Okay. So I guess that's one thing I'd like to talk about. Yeah. Well, go I'll, go. Let's go. Let's, you put a pin in that. Let's come back to the religious part about uh, the, about the team and the community. I mean, to open with the church service and the way that they did, um, it's only fitting. I mean, these play the team plays in a in a stadium called the Stadium of Light, right? The fans show up on Sundays in their attire. Um, there is there are hymns that they sing, right, or chants, if you will, that never stop. And there's the, there are those elements of hope. Um, and devotion. But I think there's another subtle thing here, and they don't really even talk about it at all. Actually, I take that back. Uh, And I believe it's in episode seven in the church service where the priest talks about during the football season, his job, he's a bit busier, right? Um, And I think it's, it kind of touches on what you were talking about with Vikings fans reading the paper on a Monday, like, or that circulation increases uh, during the season. Um, And you've written a bit about this too, and I know you've thought a lot about this, but I was thinking about this team, about Sunderland FC, about the club as a scapegoat. And because you see these fans come in, and I think they, I wonder if their frustration with the team is not an outlet for them for frustrations about their larger day-to-day lives, right? where they can come in and they can yell at the team when they don't perform. I mean, and there are as vitriolic uh, 
as vitriolic cursing as you're ever going to see. Um, and the way that these fans can go back and forth between damning and praising their uh, the the players, I wonder if there's not something more going on there from a, a spiritual perspective. I, don't, I wonder if you yeah, thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I all. did think that it's it's an outlet you know it's a, it's a it's a pressure relief valve for them to stand up and scream one guy waves money at the referee because he thinks the ref missed a you know a foul um there they another guy in in the last episode you know almost gets in a shoving match with the head coach um they're elated when they when the team wins and they're um um devastated when the team loses and I do think there's some projection going on. You know, I mean, the the bigger issue you want to ask people is like, and and the the, the show does not, and they must have made a deliberate decision not to do this. They do not step back and deal with bigger socioeconomic issues in the town of Sunderland. You never hear one of the 60 year old fans saying all the young people are leaving and moving to London and Manchester because there's no jobs in Sunderland. You, you, you know, you would hear that a lot if you were um, looking at a documentary about a, a small city in the United States. You know, it's the kind of thing Anthony Bourdain heard people say when he went to West Virginia, you know, um, everyone's leaving who want, there are no jobs in West Virginia. Right. Everyone's leaving in New York or Chicago or the coast. Um, and so I do think it does, but it doesn't take much for an educated viewer to watch these people screaming at a team that is struggling, doing their best and making 100 fold more than these people are making driving taxis or working in coffee shops um, to think that like uh, there's some unreality going on here. And um, maybe sport is escapist and allowing them to avoid dealing with the sadness of their own lives, their own, the, 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 the fact that their town is dying. I mean, more than once you hear, more than once you hear, all we've got going in Sunderland is this soccer club. That's it. I was about to I would say we're making some assumptions about people's happiness that I don't think are completely fair, but also the series gives us space to do that, right? From the very start, the way in which they talk about Sunderland, jobs aren't there anymore. Um, like a lot of small towns, right? And to your point, even fans are saying, you know, why do I why do we they talk about kind of blood, sweat, and tears, right? Like we we spend our money, we're here every Saturday. I mean, the show evidence is that they're this is again kind of the one thing these people have, not that their families aren't fulfilling and they don't find joy in other communities, but this is for, for at least the fans that we see. And there are many, this is a big thing for them. And, and, and these are the people that I'm talking about, right? Not the whole of Sunderland, but for the people who are so devoted to this team, I think we can say this is, this is their life, right? Yeah. Like I'm going to, I'm going, I have season tickets to LAFC, right? The season kicks off this weekend. I'll be there. I'll be at every game I can go to, but you know, I'm not cursing out uh, Latif blessing because he missed a goal. Right. I just, you know, I don't hold that so closely. Yeah. 
But again, I, I, I'm not in. I'm not in a community. LAFC is a new team that got here last year, right? It has not been in Los Angeles in the fabric of the city for a hundred plus years. And also, Los Angeles is not a town where basically on a Saturday, it's all you have to do is watch the match, right? Yeah. So I I understand that there's some different contexts well, I, there. That, yeah. That make- Before we go, I want to talk about one character I found com- uh, very very compelling in the show who bridged the upstairs and the downstairs um, and was kind of had a Messiah like quality. Um, And that's the coach, Chris Coleman. And he, you know, uh, the manager, he's brought in after Simon Grayson is fired. And I would say like, after watching two episodes, I was, you know, I liked Simon Grayson. I thought here's a guy who knows a lot about soccer and seems to be doing a good job. But then <laughs> when Chris Coleman comes in, you realize how, how much more qualified he is than Simon Grayson. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it is yeah. like Superman standing next to uh, a, somebody who works at the DMV or something. You know, I mean, it's just like night and day. <laughs> they're in two totally different classes of people and he comes in and he has command and control um and the team continues to lose but he deals with the people on that club with such humanity that um and it you know what i would say it's it's really effective here's here's what i would say i like martin bain the the chief executive just like you did and I thought he was the real hero until Chris Coleman came in. And then it became more clear to me that this executive was a tool of the management, that he didn't actually care that much about the players. He cared about the financial success of the team. Chris Coleman not only cares about the players, he cares about the cooks. He cares about the equipment managers. He cares about the fans like he seems to be the one guy who really understands what the filmmakers understand and that is this is about the fans of the Sunderland football club this is not actually about the Sunderland football club and the players on it this is about the fans who love this team so much that they weep when the team loses and he understood that and I was shocked and depressed when he got fired in the last episode by the new I agree I agree and I feel like it'd be interesting to track to see where some of these people are now because I found it and you notice what they tried to do for some I guess to to make it appear more even or fair there was one player who had some kind of underhanded made a couple of underhanded comments about Coleman or made yeah, some criticism he's standing about by the, style. He's, he's standing but, by but, the goal on the, at the outdoor practice. Yeah, but field when you, he, yeah, but when you hear when you hear those in the context of everything you're seeing about him, they just don't land. Sometimes I, uh, they don't land as effectively as as they could have because then I'm sitting there going, well, this is saying far more to me about the player than it is the manager, right? Yeah. Um, because this guy has this presence, you know, that you've already, and, and you've already the, kind of pointed the, to. I think like the moral high point of the eight episodes 
is when this um, woman uh, chef, unfortunately, whose name is not on IMDb, so I can't look up her name, but I know her last name is Rome, but she, she's in a bunch of the episodes. When she reads the text message that Chris Coleman has sent her after yeah. he got sacked. Yeah. Yeah. I got a little, I it's, got a little incredible, dusty man. Uh, when it's I was watching It's incredible that he would send that. And it's a long text and it's heartfelt. Like he is a legit good human being who sees the good in other people, wants to bring out the best. Like he, for him, it wasn't just about winning games so that he could, get a team in the premier league. Like he wanted to stay coaching the team when it went down to league one. And um, so anyway, I thought he became the, the part of the, and here, here's, here's another reason. Like you, you and I watched a, a couple episodes of umbrella Academy and I quit watching that. I had the same experience watching a Mar- a marvelous Mrs. Maisel. There were no characters in those shows that I liked. There was nobody I was pulling for. You know, there's nobody I was rooting for. Everyone is either shallow or mean or, you know what I'm saying? And I found that with Chris Coleman, there was really kind of like a a, a, a moral gravitational center to the team and to the show and uh, uh, a Messiah figure. I mean, I texted you at one point when I was watching Coach as Messiah figure. He when, when he yeah. came in, he's okay, gonna let's save even, let's the say team, it like right? this: when he came in, he was gonna save the team. He was gonna save the team by more wins, right? Yeah, but in yeah. fact, he was not the Messiah they were expecting. And I am not, I'm not joking. He's not the Messiah they were expecting because he was, he was the, the Messiah, Messiah who humanized everybody who was connected with that organization, fans, players, and low-level staff. He was not the Messiah who brought them back to the Premier League, but he was the Messiah who made them feel seen and heard. Yeah. Gave them, yeah. Gave belief in themselves. He, you know, I did a quick search. He's managing a oh, soccer really? team in China now. And I did a quick search and Sunderland yeah. is one game behind the uh, promotion level to get back to the championship. To get back to the championship. Are you going <laughs> to be a Sunderland a fan now? Is this what I'm So hearing? anyway, those are my thoughts. And, and I really ended up, Really liking the show, really liking Chris Coleman especially, and um, it, it, yeah, I, I I like these these sports limited series uh, docudramas. Interesting. I hear I hear that the uh, Manchester City series on Amazon is quite good. Hmm. Well, all right, so let's just, talk just about that up there. Um, I was trying to find. I was trying to see where Martin Bain was because I'm going to try to get his phone number and call him just so he can talk Ask me to him, sleep. The every guy night. you never see him eat, but man, he's always got a cup of coffee in his hand. He, he does. He does. Yeah, he always wears these 
nice clothes and he drives a Range Rover. I might have a I might have a man crush on him. I don't know. Let's tease our listeners for what we'll be talking about next week. Well, next week, uh, I don't know if anybody's going to listen to this on Friday the 1st or Saturday the 2nd, but I'm going to try to post this quickly. Uh, we are going to, like I imagine many people, on Sunday night, we will be watching the first of the two-part documentary called Leaving Neverland about Michael Jackson and uh, as sex abuse. So uh, we will be stealing ourselves for... What I've heard coming out of Sundance, uh, I didn't see it. It played before I got there. Is a very uh, a difficult show to watch. But again, I think we've talked a little bit about this, and we're going to revisit this. Tony doesn't know because I'm just saying this now. This idea of celebrity and yeah. how celebrity and fame, or how celebrities are seen as as messiah figures, and 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 they shouldn't be. We see it in our churches now. We see it in the we see it in the Catholic Church. We see it in the yeah. And the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, uh, because in these communities, they function, you know, their priests do have a level of celebrity. And I think we are seeing ways in which I want to talk about another podcast episode um, where a very famous manager actually talks about this, um, the way in which celebrity. Uh, is, well, is and how we should not deify and divinize celebrities. Yeah. So we're going to, that's, that's Sunday and Monday night. And I think we're going to try to record quickly after that. Cause I know that there'll be a big conversation going on kind of in the, the public sphere about that and on social media. So we'll try to add our voices yep. to that. So, all right. Well, thanks everybody for listening to this extended version of uh, killer serials. And that's because we tackled an entire series, which um, we hope you probably watched if you're listening to this, but if you haven't now, we hope we've, compelled you to watch and um, check out Finding Neverland. You can't be on social media without hearing about it these days. It is, it is a That's for sure. leaving Neverland, yeah. leaving Neverland, leaving Neverland. Sorry. Leaving. And, yeah. <laughs> Finding Neverland. Yeah, let's do Whole that. Different movie. Let's do that. <laughs> let's talk about it next week. We'll watch it. And thanks everybody for listening to killer serials and we'll see you next week.